The Hamlet Podcast, episode 71. Hello and welcome to this penultimate episode of our exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We have reached the absolute climax of the play as Shakespeare finally brings together the two great warriors of the piece. We've watched their stories told in parallel throughout the play. All the way back in episode 3, I suggested that we could read Ross's account of Bellona's bridegroom as being about Macduff instead of Macbeth. I still think this tracks very well, and gives the play a pretty urgent tension between the two warriors. At the end of that scene, Duncan could have made Macduff the Thane of Cawdor, but then perhaps we might not have had as interesting a play. Now we are at Act 5, Scene 8, and as some stage directions might tell you, we're at another part of the field. Macbeth enters first, alone, and he speaks to us. Why should I play the Roman fool and die on mine own sword? Whiles I see lives, the gashes do better upon them. Throughout the play, we've had occasional nods to the theatre, to performance and acting, not a million miles from the dissembling that Macbeth and his wife have fostered and encouraged. Now he asks a very meta-theatrical question. Why should I kill myself as though I were performing the role of an ancient Roman? At the end of Hamlet, Horatio likewise considered suicide, claiming that he was more of an antique Roman than a Dane. Suicide was considered an honourable option in ancient Rome, especially in the face of defeat. Better to die by one's own sword than submit to the enemy. It's more than likely that Richard Burbage would have played Macbeth in Shakespeare's company. A few years earlier he would have played Brutus in Julius Caesar, killing himself on stage at the end of that play. Soon afterwards, Ending the whole story, Mark Antony calls Brutus the noblest Roman of them all. Interestingly, Burbage would also play the latter character, Mark Antony, in his own play, Antony and Cleopatra, a few months after Macbeth. Within the rich life and theatre-going experience of seeing these actors creating and playing all these roles, there's something so interesting about a comment like, Why should I play the Roman fool? It's as if Macbeth is denouncing these ancient characters for taking the easy way out, although calling them fools feels too like a sly wink to the audience that has already seen him play those parts. It's just a tiny glimpse at how connected and even intertextual all of these performances might have been, and I have to say, I love it. But we should stay on the battlefield. Macbeth is saying that he has no intention of ending his own life, for as long as he sees other fighting bodies or lives in front of him, he'll cut gashes into them instead of into himself. Why should I play the Roman fool and die on mine own sword? Whilst I see lives, the gashes do better upon them. Throughout our progress through the play, I've been harping on about shared lines and characters completing a line of verse that someone else began. The rhythms are sophisticated and dynamic, but perhaps the most dramatic of the lot comes now, as Macduff has entered behind Macbeth's back and challenges him. He shouts, 
turn, hellhound, turn. As a Christmas bonus to the show notes, I'm very tempted to do a page on dogs in Shakespeare. There's already one about owls, which flies so repeatedly through this play. But dogs always seem to be bad for Shakespeare, which is ironic given how beloved they are in the world today. Macduff's insult here is that Macbeth isn't just a dog. He's like the worst kind of dog in hell. He's not a man, he's an animal. Four syllables, but it's one of the great challenges in all of drama. Turn, hellhound, turn. Macbeth answers, Of all men else I have avoided thee, but get thee back. My soul is too much charged with blood of thine already. These really are fighting words. Macbeth acknowledges that he has somewhat avoided Macduff, since, of course, the apparitions told him to beware this thane of fife. But lest he sound scared or too reliant on prophecies, he turns things around with this awful, mocking line. He tells him to get back, get away from him. My soul is too much charged with blood of thine already. It's an open acknowledgement. I haven't pursued you because I've killed enough members of your family already. It's easy to pass over in the heady rush of this scene, but it's a really nasty thing to say. Macduff's answer is very much in keeping with his character. I have no words. My voice is in my sword. Thou bloodier villain than terms can give thee out. There really isn't much he could say in answer to Macbeth, taunting him about having murdered his wife and children. So he agrees. I have no words. Let my sword be my voice. You're such a blood-soaked criminal that there really are no words to describe you. And so, since there are no words, it's time for action. And they fight. Macbeth perhaps doesn't let this go for too long, since he'll soon announce, Thou losest labour. As easy mayst thou the entrenchant air with thy keen sword impress, as make me bleed. Let fall thy blade on vulnerable crests. I bear a charmed life which must not yield to one of woman born. Macbeth is getting smug, explaining to Macduff that he's wasting his time. He has as much chance of cutting through the air and leaving a mark on it as he does of making Macbeth bleed. Entrenchant is a great word. Its opposite, trenchant, means something cutting. Shakespeare uses it for swords, but nowadays we tend to use it for criticism. The air obviously cannot be cut, and so it is intrenchant, no matter how keen or sharp Macduff's sword might be. Macbeth, instead, rather patronisingly, tells Macduff to let his blade fall on vulnerable crests. Vulnerable here is from the Latin root, which means, literally, capable of being wounded. Macbeth thinks that he's invincible, and therefore invulnerable. He says, and this is where we get the phrase, that he bears a charmed life. He will not be killed by anyone of woman born. So as far as Macbeth thinks, Macduff should just give up. Macduff, of course, has a comeback. Despair thy charm. And let the angel whom thou still hast served tell thee 
Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. Despair thy charm is a great answer to Macbeth's line of a charmed life. Whatever little magic or blessing Macbeth was relying on, he should give up any hope of it saving him. He should despair. He'd be better off if that angel, or devil, he's been serving, had bothered to tell him that Macduff was born via Caesarean section. Macbeth has misinterpreted. There is a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that says, Among them that are born of women, there have not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Here it's a generic term for humankind, of woman born just means anyone alive, really. But in this dark and violent play, of course Macduff has a darker and rather crueler interpretation of this. It's possible Macduff's mother died in childbirth, and so the phrase untimely ripped is all the more violent here. It's such a shocking image to us, and certainly to Macbeth, that the remainder of the line of verse is empty to allow for a significant pause. Macbeth has been totally misled. Macduff is a far bigger threat than he imagined. When he's caught his breath, Macbeth eventually responds. Accursed be that tongue that tells me so, for it hath cowed my better part of man. And be these juggling fiends no more believed that palter with us in a double sense, that keep the word of promise to our ear and break it to our hope. I'll not fight with thee. Macbeth curses Macduff's tongue for telling him this. It's the worst news possible. He's been relying so heavily on this idea that none of woman born could harm him. Now that Macduff has told him this, the news has frightened him, badly. It has cowed, or intimidated, his better part of man, his valour, his bravery, his fighting spirits. Curses on Macduff for this. What's worse, he's instantly lost faith in the witches and their apparitions. They are juggling fiends to him now, deceptive devils, no more to be believed. They have tricked him paltering, as he puts it. They've dealt with him in a double sense. And of course the word is double that we hear again here. Double, double, double trust, done double, and now this double sense. They keep the word of promise to our ear, but break it to our hope. He believed their words, and of course they have betrayed his hopes and ambitions. It's a crushing realisation, and so Macbeth says now that he will not fight with Macduff. But Macduff won't hear of it. Then yield thee, coward, and live to be the show and gaze of the time. We'll have thee, as our rarer monsters are, painted on a pole and under it, here may you see the tyrant. Macduff is mocking Macbeth now, hoping for a response. Yield, he tells him submit. He calls Macbeth a coward, which may even echo cows from Macbeth's own speech. He threatens that Macbeth will live, instead of dying in combat, to be the show and gaze of the time. He will become a public spectacle, perhaps to be exhibited in defeat. This often happened to those beaten by those antique Romans. Macduff is threatening to turn Macbeth into a carnival freak of some sort, an exhibition like what Macduff calls rarer monsters, 
tied to a pole and with a painted sign saying, Here may you see the tyrant. Look at how far he's fallen. Macbeth may be fancying himself as the hero of a great, perhaps classical tragedy, but Macduff is threatening to turn him into a public joke. And this taunting has worked, because now Macbeth responds, I will not yield to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet, and to be baited with the rabble's curse. Though Burnham would be come to Dunsinane, and thou opposed being of no woman born, yet I will try the last. Before my body I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damned be him that first cries, hold, enough. Macduff told him to yield, but now Macbeth says, I will not. He refuses to yield or to kiss the ground in surrender to Malcolm. Nor will he be jeered by the curses of the rabble, the common people. Again, we have the idea of being baited like a bear. All of these bankside and fairground entertainments are really not how Macbeth wants to be perceived. He wants to be a hero, and so he will fight. Even though Burnham Wood has shockingly come to Dunsinane, even though he will have to fight this opponent, Macduff, who was not of woman born, yet, he says, he will try the last. He will fight until the end. So, he explains as he does it, he throws his warlike shield before his body. Bring it on, he says, and curses upon whichever of them gives up first and says stop, or enough. It's really awful trying to paraphrase this, because the line itself is so good and well constructed. Lay on, Macduff, and damned be he that first cries, hold, enough. Shakespeare then does the appropriate thing after such a fearsome rhyming couplet and has the two warriors exit, fighting. There's an expectation that a crowned king is about to die here, and this was not something that was acceptable to put on stage. Remember Elizabeth I and the major drama of seeing Richard II dying on the stage, and where that led to. So whatever is going to happen next technically takes place off stage. Some modern productions have actually had Macbeth and Macduff fight till the end in full view of the audience. Some, perhaps inspired by this scene's opening line about suicide, have even had Macbeth participate in his death and help Macduff to kill him. In some instances, we've seen Macbeth break up that last line so that Macbeth's final word, enough, is a kind of a capitulation, a surrender. If he does so, of course, he is cursing himself after what he said, and whatever defiance or bravery he may have shown at the last is rather compromised. The great richness of this play is that it is open to so much interpretation. Macbeth, one of Shakespeare's most complicated and compromised heroes, has marched off now to meet his fate. It's a tragedy, of course, and anyone who had read Holinshed would have already known that Macbeth cannot survive this play. But, storyteller that he is, Shakespeare won't confirm anything until the last scene of the play. And so, dear listener, you'll have to come back next time to hear how it all ends. If you're following and listening to the podcast in real time as these episodes are airing, you'll hear this perhaps on Christmas Eve. It's not, perhaps, the most seasonal of stories to be telling, but nonetheless, I want to wish you all the compliments of the season and hope that you and yours have a beautiful holiday. This week, the podcast cleared 
over a hundred thousand streams in 2023, and I'm hugely grateful to you all for tuning in. Some of you have been very generous and sent me a little coffee in recent weeks, and that is very gratefully received as well. The next episode of Macbeth will, of course, be the last, but stay tuned for big news of what we will be doing next, coming in the next couple of days. Thank you for your company, and I hope you'll join me next time.